Many believe that the most beautiful book in the world is the Book of Kells. On display at Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland, it is a handwritten, illuminated manuscript of the four Gospels created in the ninth century by Irish monks. So, the most beautiful book in the world is a Bible. When Gutenberg invented the printing press, the first book he printed was a Bible, making the Bible the oldest printed book in the world. Every year, the best-selling book in America is the Bible. No book has been translated into more languages than the Bible. At this point, nearly a 1,000. The most widely read book around the world is the Bible. Now, those statistics alone should create a, a desire within you to say, man, if it is the oldest and the most widely read and the most often translated and the bestseller, I want to know what's in this book and what makes it so special. I believe, folks, that it is God's love letter to us and it's worth studying. Every book, which brings us to the three we're going to take a look at this morning, the last three of Old Testament history, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. These books take us from the end of the captivity period that we find in Daniel all the way through to the return to the city of Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple, and the rebuilding of the city walls. Ezra tells tells us about the nearly 50,000 people that left Persia and went back to Jerusalem and they rebuilt the temple. Esther tells us about a life and death struggle for the Jewish people that remained in Persia, that didn't go home. And so she leads in this marvelous rescue attempt, as Tim pointed out a little bit earlier in the service. And Nehemiah? Well, Nehemiah tells us about the last great victories of the Old Testament, and that's where I want us to focus our attention this morning. And you say, well, well, what is the context of the book of Nehemiah? Well, Well, let me give that to you in this way. Do you remember the story of the three pigs? I know this is deep theology, but stay with me here for just a few minutes, all right? The first two pigs, being carefree or careless or maybe just weary, settled for houses of straw and twigs, remember? And they escaped disaster only by the hair of their chinny-chin-chins. The third and wisest of the pigs built his house of bricks. Now, it was hard work. It took him a lot longer and allowed for less fun things in life. But in the end, it was a safe place, protecting him and the other two less-than-wise porkers that took up residence in his domicile. When your big bad wolf moments come huffing and puffing at the door of your life, you had better be building with something solid like bricks. It's hard work, one brick at a time, but in the end, it's worth the effort. You see, the Israelites of Nehemiah's day had settled for a life of straw and twigs. They'd grown weary and complacent, and they were not willing to take on the remainder of the restoration of Jerusalem. They'd simply given up. Nehemiah prayed to be an agent of change, and when he came, He led them in the restoration of the walls, one brick at a time, restoring not just walls, but restoring precious lives. What Nehemiah did was nothing short of phenomenal. What God did through Nehemiah was nothing short of providential. And yet, folks, I want you to know there is nothing supernatural that happens in the book of Nehemiah. Nothing miraculous. God did it all providentially. As a matter of fact, God doesn't even speak in the book of Nehemiah. There is no written verbal word of God 
in the book of Nehemiah, but his fingerprint is on every page, on every verse, and every line, and every chapter. You can see how God orchestrates all the pieces to bring it together at the right moment for the right purpose at the right time. So let me tell you his story briefly and then draw some quick lessons. Now remember, Nehemiah had been born in Babylon, which had become Persia by this time in the story. And so he had never been to the land of Judea. He had never seen the city of Jerusalem. So this is all foreign to him. He's only heard about it from those who had been there, his ancestors. What's more, he had a terrific job in the palace there in the city. He was cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. And cupbearer not only was a position who served food to the king, but was reserved for somebody who was of great trustworthiness. Only those who were above reproach could serve in that capacity because they had to do with the king's food. It would have been easy for them to put poison in the food if they were not somebody trustworthy. Consequently, the cupbearer became an advisor to the king. He had an influential career. He was living the good life. Uh, he had a very comfortable environment in which to work. Uh, uh, he had access to all of the black tie events at the palace and to the list of who's who in the kingdom. He would have known such Hebrew notables as, as Daniel and Esther and Ezra and Malachi. And so Nehemiah was in a pretty unique spot. Easy for him to say, hey, God, you have given me this great job. I better stay here. Then one day, all of this changed. Hanani and a handful of others returned with a report of the city of Jerusalem, and the news was not positive. In chapter 1, verse 3, this is what we read. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So Nehemiah prayed and he requested of the king to go to the land of his ancestors and help them rebuild the city. He gave up his royal position to make Jerusalem his mission in life. Organized in his preparation, thoughtful in his approach to the problem, encouraging in his leadership with the people, and prayerful in his desire to do the will of God, Nehemiah took on a job that was bigger than life, and God worked through him in a tremendous way. There's a, there's a progress report in chapter 4, verse 6. It said, so we rebuilt the wall until all of it reached half of its height. And now listen to this. For the people worked with all their heart. Would you tell me, how do we get a group of people who had left it languished for all of those years now working with all their heart? I'll tell you. The leadership of a man like Nehemiah can inspire the masses to accomplish what they could not accomplish otherwise. And what happened next is simply remarkable. Look in chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elu in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations uh, were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. It's a big deal, 52 days. Yeah, this is a really big deal. Do you realize the size and the massive nature of these walls? Archaeologists and historians would tell us that the circumference of the wall that surrounded Jerusalem in that day and time was two and a half miles. That the city walls were somewhere between 16 and 20 foot thick, and they, they were at least 20 feet high. And all of that was done with hand labor. There is no power tools to be used in something like this. All of that was done by the will of the people. 
Nehemiah got done what nobody else could get done. And you say, how did he do that? Well, let me give you some of the characteristics of his life that I think are worth our study and our imitation. Here's the first thing. Don't miss this one. Prayer should be a priority in our lives. It certainly was a priority in Nehemiah's life. There are at least nine prayers of Nehemiah recorded in this small book. And Nehemiah's response to the word that he got from Jerusalem at the very beginning tells you about how he viewed this important spiritual discipline. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 4 says, and this is when uh, Hanani and the rest of them said, oh, everything's in a mess. In, in the very next verse, verse 4 says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept, and for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. What I love about Nehemiah is he didn't sit down first and take a sheet of paper or parchment and write out everything that needed to be done to restore the walls. He didn't go to the king and said, what can we do to help them out? He didn't scratch his brain and say, who do I know in Jerusalem that would make a good project manager for this? The first thing Nehemiah did was fast and pray. More than, the, more than a half of the first chapter is a prayer, and it sets a tone for the rest of this narrative. Can I ask you this morning? Where does God rank in your order of priorities? Where does prayer figure into your priority mix? For life to matter, God must matter most. If he isn't your top priority, then you need to change your priorities. Dwight L. Moody said, we honor God when we ask for great things. It is a humiliating thing to think that we are satisfied with very small results. So I ask you, do your prayers honor the greatness of God? For nearly 25 years, Jerry Moore was the head football coach at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. During that time, his team won three consecutive national championships and seven Southern Conference championships. From 2007 to 2010, his team won 26 straight conference games. Now, that's an impressive record for any coach, but that's not why I have such admiration for what he's done. Jerry Moore is a devout Christian, and he formed a habit of walking through the locker room after every game and after everybody was out of the building. He touched every locker and prayed for every player. Each week, he would focus in on one of his players, sat at the student's locker, contemplated his life, his talents, his abilities, and then he got down on his knees in front of that locker and prayed specifically for that young man. Now, you say, well, God then gave him a winning record. No, I, I don't think God cares about wins and losses. So whether you're praying for Peyton Manning and the Broncos or you're praying for Andrew Luck and the Colts tonight, it isn't a matter. There's people on both sides praying. God can't answer everybody's prayer on that standpoint. And I don't really think God's concerned about wins and losses when it comes to sports. But I do think God loves it when a man makes priority a prayer, a prayer a priority in his life. I do believe that God cared about Jerry Moore and that his prayers made him a better man, a better husband, a better father, and yes, a better coach, a better example worth following, a better uh, leader worth following. 
And I do believe that God cares very much about every player that he prayed and that lifting up each one of his players' names before God changed those young men's lives as well. They may not even realize it until they get down the road, but I know that God honored those prayers. So when you pray, don't pray about the wins and losses kind of things. You pray about people and relationships and God's will and God's plan for your life and your role in it. That is a priority that matters. Here's another thing I see in, in, in Nehemiah, and that is use diplomacy on a daily basis. Now, Nehemiah's boss, King Artaxerxes, was a powerful man and had the reputation of being pretty ruthless. As a matter of fact, are you aware of this, that Persian kings had a rule, if you come into their palace and you're in their presence, you cannot look sad. Okay? I mean, you know, it'd be nice if you could say that to everybody in your life. You can't be sad when you're with me. And I, I guess that would create a rather pleasant atmosphere. But if you were sad in the king's presence, he could actually kill you uh, or have you executed as a result of that. So Nehemiah is between a rock and a hard place here. His heart is broken. The, the, the heritage of his people, God's people, is, is in ruins in the city of Jerusalem. His heart is breaking, and he cannot show sadness. So for four months... He keeps it in four months. And one day the king notices, he said, Nehemiah, there's something wrong. This, this is sadness of heart. What's, what's wrong in your life? And this is what we read in chapter 2, verse 2. I was very much afraid. <laughs> of course he would be. This could have cost him his life at that moment. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. He didn't say, well, if, well finally you noticed Took you long enough to find out I'm hurting on the inside. What's the matter with you? I've worked here and served you your food for all these years, and you can't take time to notice I'm sad? That's not a diplomatic approach. That's not very tactful. That's a death sentence when you approach the king that way. But notice he said, may the king live forever. Oh, but your majesty, why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Notice again the priority of prayer. The king says, well, what, are you, what, what would you like me to do? And, and Nehemiah said, So I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, folks, he doesn't drop to his knees and close his eyes and spend 20 minutes in prayer in the king's presence. This is one of those what I call popcorn prayers where it just pops right up to God in your mind, in your heart, and I think he's just saying, God, give me the right words right now. And he responded to the king, and the king responds graciously. And you, and you say, well, why did the king respond so agreeably to Nehemiah? Well, I think two things. Number one, God made the king receptive because it was an answer to Nehemiah's prayer. And the answer to that prayer really advanced God's ultimate plan in this world. Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. Like an irrigation canal through a field directs the course of the water so God directs the courses of nations and kings and royalty to accomplish his will. Now, I know some of you are thinking, yes, I prayed, and I prayed really earnestly, and God did not answer my prayer with a yes. I know, I know, I know. If it makes you feel any better, God does not always answer my prayers with a yes. Sometimes God says no. Sometimes God's just silent when I pray. I, I understand what you're saying, but I, I want you to know God has got the big picture in view. And what we cannot see, he can see. 
and that God is moving history to its ultimate conclusion. He may not answer every prayer like we pray the way we want it, because God has a greater perspective. And would you remember this? Be patient when you pray. Nehemiah is brokenhearted. It took four months for God to open up the opportunity with the king. When your heart is breaking, four months, a third of a year is a long time to wait. God's timing is always perfect. Give God time to work and trust him with the right answer. The second reason I think the king was agreeable to Nehemiah's request is that Nehemiah was such a trustworthy individual. Nehemiah was in a position to do something great for the Jewish people only because he was a man of integrity, trust, and honesty. He was a man of impeccable character. Warren Buffett said, you're neither right nor wrong because people agree with you. You're right because your facts and reasoning are right. I would prefer to say it this way. You're neither right nor wrong because people agree with you. You're right because your character is a reflection of God's character and your behavior is a reflection of his word and standards. I don't care what anybody has to say about you or to you. It's God that counts and his opinion and his word and his standards and his integrity that makes all the difference. God can do great work through you if you are a person of integrity and character. If you aren't, God will have a hard time working through you because the world around you will not respect you. Here's the third thing, speaking about respect, be respectful of others. Nehemiah was very respectful of the people of Jerusalem. When he arrived in the city, he didn't do so with fanfare. He didn't come in with flags flying and banners waving and shouting, riding a white horse, I'm here, I've come to save Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, the first thing he does is he gets a handful of people, fills them in, and they take a tour of the city walls at night. Because he doesn't want to alarm people. And so after he's surveyed all the damage and he begins to work out his plan and to take notes, he's just being really low-key. Then he announces to the people his plan. You see, he didn't want them building up rumors or building up false expectations or who is this guy that's coming in to do something to our city. And so in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, this is what we read. Then I said to them, this is the people, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let's start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Wow. (laughs) Nehemiah knew changes were necessary, but he was very careful how he introduced the changes. The walls of the city of Jerusalem, let me put this into perspective. They had been down for about 142 years. From the time that the city had been destroyed to the time of the captivity and through the first wave and the second wave that had gone back, and by the time that Nehemiah gets back there, about approximately 142 years. Let me put that into perspective. You come to Bloomington one day, you're thinking about moving to this particular place, this particular city. You drive downtown, and and you notice that the city courthouse and the city square is nothing but a pile of rubble. And there's vines and weeds growing all over the place, and you stop at a little fast food place, and you ask the people there, well, how long has the courthouse and the square been in such condition? And, and they say, oh, well, about 142 years. We just haven't gotten around to getting anything done about it yet. And you say, well, it's 1871. That happened in 1871. Well, Ulysses S. Grant was president in 1871. There were only 37 stars on our flag in 1871. 
Uh, Orville Wright was born in 1871. The first Major League Baseball game was played in 1870. You haven't done anything since 1871? Now let me ask you, would you stay or would you just keep driving on through to find another place to live? You'd drive on through. I mean, if, if a group of people can't clean up their city in 142 years, you're going to think, crumbled city, crumbled people, crumbled lives. I don't think I want to stay here. That's the condition. This is what's going on. Now, I'm grateful that we live in a community where the downtown is so vibrant and beautiful that when people come to town, they want to stay here. It's a reflection on who we are. This was a reflection on who's God, who God's people were at the time. President Harry Truman once said, a leader is a person who has the ability to get others to do what they don't want to do and like it. <laughs> Nehemiah was that kind of a leader. Not only did Nehemiah make the most of his talents, he relied upon God to bring the victory. And here's how God and Nehemiah worked together to do it. Nehemiah motivated them with the right focus. Nehemiah didn't come in, point the finger at the people, he pointed the finger at the problem. Oh, there is so much difference in this. You understand, this is a respect level. He didn't come in and say, look at the mess you've created. What's the matter with you people? You've let this go for 142 years. No, he comes in and he says, look at the mess we are in. He doesn't talk about the people being the problem. He talks about the problem being the problem. Now, really, the people were the problem. They hadn't done what they were supposed to do, but Nehemiah knows that once you start to point the finger at the, at the people, you're done. They're not going to listen. And so he lays the blame at the ruins. And they had become, they, they'd become so accustomed to it, I think they'd just gotten used to living. Do you know what it's like? You, you got something that's leaning up in the corner of a room in your house. It got put there by accident. And you walk through that room and say, oh, I got to move that. And you go through there the next day. Oh, I got to move that. And the third day you'll go through there. Oh, I got to move that. And the fourth day you go through and it looks like it belongs there. <laughs> You've gotten so accustomed to it being there, you don't even notice it anymore. You know, you see that a lot of different places uh, in life. That's what had happened here. They, they had gotten so accustomed to the walls being down, that they just weren't going to rebuild it. But Nehemiah says, see the trouble we are in. Come, let us build. We will no longer be in disgrace. I love this about Nehemiah. This wasn't his problem. He hadn't lived there any time, remember? And yet when he gets there, he becomes part of them. This is our problem. He didn't say, you see the trouble you're in? You need to start rebuilding and get out of this disgrace. No, it's us. And it's so much easier when a leader says it's us as opposed to me and you. Makes all the difference in the world. That's respectful of the people. They're all in this together. And Nehemiah motivated them with the grace of God in the situation as well. He said, the gracious hand of my God is upon me. Now, you've got to think, too, that these people watching these walls in, in a crumbled mess for 142 years would have concluded God has long forgotten about us. God doesn't care about us. God doesn't care what happens here. Look at this. We're still a mess. Nehemiah comes back and says, this is God's plan. You mean God hadn't forgot about us? Oh no. God's, been, God's plan is right. Now's the time. That would have encouraged the people to know that God had not abandoned them or forgotten them. And then Nehemiah motivated them with the blessing of the king. He said, what's more, the king of Persia is behind this. And he has sent supplies with me to help rebuild the wall. And the people suddenly say, all right, let's go. We're ready. You see, sometimes when you respect people and you motivate them with the right words and the right knowledge, it makes all the difference in the world. Last thing, don't be deterred from God's purpose in your life. Now, not everybody was excited that this was happening. 
uh, there were some who were flat out angry that this was happening. There were critics and bullies uh, all over the place. Uh, look in chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard about the repairs to Jerusalem's walls and that they had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry and they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet the threat. Discouragement, folks, comes in a lot of different ways. I mean, discouragement can be little things, it can be big things. <laughs> uh, did you hear about the, the, the elderly woman who commented on her husband who had just died? She said, he lived a long, full, wonderful life and came very close to outliving his student loans. <laughs> if you've got a student loan, that can seem overwhelming. That can be almost discouraging. Discouragement comes from the littlest things or it comes from the biggest things, but I'll tell you what the hardest things are. When people are critical of what you're doing when you're trying to do your best, criticism is one of the most disheartening things in the world. And when people verbally beat up on you, it can just take the wind out of your sails. It's reassuring to me to know that criticism is not unique to our day and culture. It's as old as time itself. Bullying isn't new. Technology has only made it more dangerous, but it isn't new. There have been bullies forever, and there will be bullies forever. Now, hear, hear me carefully. If you're a young person, don't you listen to what the bullies have to say. They don't count. They don't matter. The critic doesn't count. The critic doesn't matter. The only person that matters is God. And if you're doing your best for Him, if you're serving Him, He's the one that matters. Nobody else's opinion means what his means. So don't let the critic tear you down, all right? Well, how did Nehemiah and the people handle this? Well, uh, uh, here's some things. Nehemiah built a team. He didn't do this alone. Can, can, you, can you imagine what it had been like if Nehemiah had gone in and said, I'll take care of this. You, you all just go about your daily business. I'll get this wall rebuilt, one brick at a time. Well, by the time the criticism came, it would have so discouraged him that he would have he would have left. It would have been a defeat. But Nehemiah builds a team of all the people. Now, when you talk about building a two and a half circumference mile wall, two and a half mile circumference wall, you're looking at a massive project, and people are probably thinking, I don't know how we're going to do this. And Nehemiah said, okay, Smith family, you're going to take this little slice of the wall here. Jones family, you're going to take this little slice of the wall here. And he went around and he divided up the whole project by families in the city of Jerusalem. And when you've only got a slice, you can handle that. And there's a camaraderie that works together when you're working next to people. There's can be a, almost a fun competition. Hey, they brushed off their stones really clean. Let's brush off our stones really clean before we put them up there. This is what we're doing when we're building this house for Cabrina and, and partnering with Habitat for Humanity. There's, this is a fun project to do. We're going to work shoulder to shoulder. This is what happens when we do CareFest and we go out into the community. We do things. We work shoulder to shoulder with people, making a difference. That's where a team is important. That's why, folks, God gave us the church. God knew that if we tried to go through this world alone, that the critics would destroy us, that the bullies would destroy us. But when you're down and you're hurting, this is the place for you to be. Because thankfully, we're not all discouraged at the same time. And when you're discouraged, those of us who aren't can come around you and pat you on the back and hold you up and lift you up and say, you're going to get through this, and you will, and then you'll turn around and do that for somebody else that's discouraged. You see, you work together as a team, not alone. And that's why God's family, the church, is so important. Here's something else. Nehemiah equipped the team. When the, when the critics, 
came at him, they said, the first thing they said was, oh, that, that, that wall is so flimsy. If a fox jumped on there, he could tear it down with his tail. And then, and then when that didn't work, they said, we're going to attack and beat the tar out of you. And when that didn't work, they said, Nehemiah, we want you to come down here to a meeting that we're going to have in our city and, and get a little bit better acquainted with you, which their intention was to kill him and then in so doing destroy the work. And Nehemiah set his course on doing what God had called him to do. And he eased the people's mind by having swords as well as trowels in their hands. So they worked with their trowels and their stones, and if the trumpeter spotted somebody and shouted the signal, they'd pick up their swords and put their trowels down, they'd defeat the enemy, and they'd go back to work. The attack never came because they were prepared. John Maxwell wrote, he said, the size of the person is more important than the size of the problem. And Nehemiah made these people feel like victors. You see, the size of your attitude and spirit will make you capable of what God can do. Some would have looked at Goliath and said, oh, he's too big to hit. And David looked at Goliath and said, he's too big to miss. And that made the difference. Do not let the giants of the critics tower over you and put you down and make you feel powerless. Let God work through you and prove the critics wrong. And then encourage the team. Nehemiah was a great encourager. I think I, I can just see him walking along the wall saying to this family, oh, you're doing a great job. Oh, that wall looks great. Have there been any stonemasons in your family? Because it looks like you all know what you're doing. Then he'd go on to the next one. Oh, keep it up. We're doing great. We're going to make this. With that kind of encouragement, people can rise to any challenge. He inspired them for what hadn't been possible for more than a century. And in 52 years, days the project was done that's why encouragement is so important and, and here's the good thing everybody in this room can be an encourager it may not come natural but you can decide i'm going to be an encourager i'm going to find somebody this week to encourage in their life william a ward wrote he said flatter me and i may not believe you criticize me and i may not like you ignore me and i may not forgive you encourage me and i will never forget you I wish I had time to go on with Nehemiah, but that's just the glimpse I want you to have this morning. If you want to make a difference in this world, his example is one to follow. Be prayerful, be diplomatic, be respectful, be a team player. Honor God as your top priority.